Good morning, whoever you are and wherever you may be. Uh, this is First Baptist Church, Sun City West. We're continuing our Bible study uh, in the book of Genesis, paying particularly close attention to uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham and then passed down to his generations. Uh, many times in the scripture, God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so I thought for my eight weeks uh, that I would do a study of the relationship that God had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, particularly the covenant that he made. Uh, he promised Abraham uh, that he would be the father of a new race, a new religion, uh, that God would bless him and take care of him, and that the whole world would be blessed uh, through the generation and descendants of Abraham. So, we've been waiting uh, since uh, the first one that we studied about uh, the birth of an heir. God promised Abraham and Sarah uh, that they would have an heir. And we've waited. Uh, they've made some mistakes along the way. One of them, Sarah gave her handmaiden to Abraham who bore a son for him named Ishmael. But that wasn't the child of promise. And so when we get to the 21st chapter of Genesis, uh, we find finally uh, the birth of a son. And I want to start reading in chapter 21, verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac, to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So with the birth of Isaac, we have a central fulfillment uh, of the promise that God made to Abraham. Uh, the birth of the child is the fulfillment uh, of all the promise, and without the birth of a son, uh, it's impossible to fulfill uh, the promises that God had made. Uh, the narrative uh, about the birth of Isaac is particularly understated. Uh, we're not reminded of the problems that the long wait had generated, and we are reminded that Abraham uh, was an old man when the son was born. Notice in the first verse, I think it's very important, the double refrain, speaking of God, as he said, he was gracious to Sarah, as he said, and he did for Sarah what he had promised, signifying this is no ordinary birth brought about by natural processes. Natural processes, as we know, had failed, and this is an unusual birth in every sense. It now comes only on the promise of God, and it is based on the Word of God in His promise for the birth of a child. In our study, promise overcomes barrenness. Abraham and Sarah had made several attempts to overcome barrenness on their own, uh, but the promise is the thing that brought about the birth of Isaac. Both the spiritual and the physical are bound together. Promise and reality come together. The temptation is to overlook the power of promise in our practice of faith. 
Uh, many people these days subscribe to God Helps Those Who Help Themselves school of thought, which is not scriptural at all. This is not the way of faith. Faith, according to the writer of Hebrews, is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. But the keeping of the promise is not the primary focus. It is that the promise is kept to an old age pair. Not only is there promise, there's fulfillment to those whom the world regarded as good as dead. We affirm that life comes only through promise. The promise comes only in the body of the hopeless ones. So, as we consider the loyalty and the power of the promise maker, we're reminded of Paul's words in Romans 9. It is not as though the word of God had failed. In other words, God is the promise maker and the promise keeper. The Word of God is scandalous in some ways. It never comes to fruition as we expect it. The Son comes from the couple who's as good as dead, according to the writer of Hebrews. And yet, listen to Sarah's witness. Sarah said, verse 6, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Their joy and laughter is brought to them only because of God's graciousness. It is based on nothing else but grace. It is because God is found faithful. And by his word he has broken the grip of death, hopelessness, and barrenness. Joyous laughter is the end of sorrow and weeping. It signals a new day, a new creation. It is a sheer gift. No wonder that the birth of Isaac stands as a principal model in the Bible for God's faithfulness. It is by the surprise and impossibility of Isaac that the fortunes of Israel are based. Unfortunately, there's still the other son, uh, Ishmael, and there is jealousy uh, that is growing between Sarah and Hagar and the younger son who's at this point about 14 years old. So I'm going to read 21 verses 9. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with our son Isaac. So with the weaning of Isaac, the story changes mood from laughter uh, to anger and to hatred. It's about the conflict between the son of promise, Isaac, and the son of the slave woman. Uh, the conflict eventually becomes overbearing. And the relationship between the two mothers uh, with Abraham is complicated. Isaac is the child of future, but we have to remember Ishmael uh, also has some claims as a son of Abraham. After all, Abraham was his father, 
So he's the oldest son of Abraham, regardless of how he became that. Ishmael is born to the father of promise. After Sarah's complaint, she hasn't been happy uh, through this whole process, even though it was her idea to give Hagar to Abraham. Abraham has no choice but to get rid of Hagar and the presence of her son. He sends them away into the desert loaded with a knapsack of food and a skin of water. Hagar journeys in the desert until she reaches the end of her strength, the end of the food, end of the water. Uh, she thinks that her son is going to die before her eyes and she leaves him under a bush and she goes a far distance because she can't stand to see him, him dying. But then we are told in verse 17, God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the master? What the, excuse me, what's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. So God had not forgotten his promise to Hagar. Again, he promises that the boy will be the head of a great nation. The other son is not to be dismissed by the family. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. So God is the provider, providing both uh, for uh, Abraham and Sarah and also for Hagar. Chapter 22 is a very difficult chapter to look at because it has to do with the testing of Abraham. And we read in verse one and two. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you. Sometime later introduces us uh, to among the best known and theologically most demanding chapter perhaps in the Bible. The narrative is confined to chapter 21 verses 1 through 12. It poses numerous questions of faith about God and this brings together the main affirmations of the Abrahamic tradition. All of the waiting and the fruition of the promise has come to bear in the birth of Isaac. What more could be done to develop the tradition and the tension in the story between barrenness and promise? But in our present text, unexpected things happen. Now we will see how serious faith is. It's the story of anguished faith. What happens next is very difficult to interpret. The tension begins with a God who will command the murder of a son. God calls, and as before, Abraham answers, Here I am. He stands before God, as always, answers when he is summoned. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Sacrifice him there. 
Abraham's answer is immediate and faithful. He stands ready to rely and reply to his God when he's called. His relationship to God is such that he is his own call. He knows that what is expected sometimes is unknown, but he is a creature of God's word and his calling. So we have a picture of God the tester. Something new is revealed about God. The, the promise of God is that through Isaac your descendants will be named. And yet the command of God is that Isaac must be killed. It follows that there will be no descendants and no future. That would mean the whole pilgrimage would be for naught. Abraham has trusted in a promise. Now is the promise to be abrogated? All we can say at this point is that God will be God. God must be shown to be freely sovereign just as he is graciously faithful. We cannot put oughts and shoulds on God. How can you hold together the dark command of God and the high promise of God? Martin Luther in his writings points out the contradiction. Faith says yes to the promise, which is no small matter. It also says yes to the command, which makes the promise only a promise. The question for us is, does God really test in this way? It is, in clear, it is clear in Exodus that Israel is tested by God. The testing is to assure undivided loyalty to Yahweh. It occurs only in a faith in which a single God insists upon undivided loyalty. Testing is unnecessary in religions of tolerance. Israel is tested only when it is tempted to find another or easier, less demanding alternative to God. Testing often seems to make clear the temptation to accommodate to the world, to yield to the pressures which lead to a compromised confession of faith. So we have to agree that God sometimes is the tester, but God is also the provider, the contradiction. Verse 6, chapter 22, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb to be the offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And the two of them went together. So here, the narrative begins with the testing by God. But the narrative ends with the statement, God will provide the burnt offering. It's faith as intense as does the conviction that God tests. is also the conviction that God will provide. It affirms that God, only God, and none other is the source of life. What radical faith is required to say as he looked into the eyes of his son, God himself will provide the lamb.
So the same God who set the test is sovereign in that he is the one who resolved the test in graciousness. To insist that God provides is a radical statement of faith. The term provides the idea of God's full provision of what is needed for his creatures. Provision includes the term provision, means to see ahead of time. Provide, provision, providence, all are implied in this incredible statement that God will provide. Confession of Abraham and the conclusion drawn makes clear that the entire episode is set in the context of God's care and sustaining concern. God is attentive to the needs and hungers of his creatures. So uh, this leads us, I think, uh, to the mystery of testing and providing. When they reached the place God told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took his knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, or as it has become known, Jehovah Jireh. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And on, to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Because of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son, the covenant is renewed in verses 17 and 18. The Lord said to him, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of all the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Centuries later, the writer of the book of Hebrews put it in this way. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. What do we want to say about God's temptations and God's provision? Paul the Apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians, uh, this is the message interpretation, no test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed beyond your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. So God has revealed himself in these passages as both tester and provider, not necessarily 
rational nor straight line thinking, but a mystery of faith. God tests his people to see how serious they are about their faith and in whose lives he will be fully God. God also provides giving good gifts which cannot be explained or even expected. So the paradox here is between the sovereign freedom which requires complete obedience and gracious fulfillment, gracious faithfulness, which gives good gifts. Most of us want a God who provides and not a God who tests. According to Walter Brueggemann, we see in the paradox of the crucifixion and resurrection the two affirmations that God is tester and provider. It is the God of resurrection which makes clear what is meant. He who is dead lives. Faith is nothing other than trust in the power of the resurrection against everything. Abraham believed that God would find a way to bring life even in the scenario of death. At the very last moment, a ram is provided. A substitute is given by God in his inscrutable goodness. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus speaks to his disciples, linking the terms crucifixion and resurrection. These two events belong together and cannot be separated, though they are not rational. The giving of Jesus' life and his receiving new life cannot be separated. Giving and receiving are linked together. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is tested to the ultimate. He must choose like Abraham. Just as the Passion sayings speak of the sacrifice, testing, they also speak of the providing. Jesus trusts the promise of the Father that he will provide. And again, let me read 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Maybe the lesson after all is not about Abraham being faithful. It may be about God being faithful. Amen.